Hello, and welcome to another episode of City on a Hill, a podcast about what it means to be a citizen of heaven and a citizen of the United States. We want to encourage Christians to find their tribe in the church and their hope in the kingdom of God, rather than to seek both in the kingdom of man. So with that, let's get to it today. Well, hello, I'm Eric Eastep. And I'm Scott Reevely. And this is the City on a Hill podcast. Welcome back, listeners. Welcome back, Scott. I always do that. Well, thank you. But we're, we're going we're gonna to cut straight through the, the riffraff and not talk about how we're doing, because we have a special, uh, a special episode today. What, what do we got going on, Scott? I like that you're going to ignore me because I'm riffraff. What is up with that? No, you're not the riffraff. We usually <laughs> we usually do just banter for a little while, and it's just completely unnecessary today. Okay, well, I'll I'll I won't take it personally then. No, we're we're here today with Paul Hoffman, and we're talking with Paul because he recently wrote a book called "Preaching to a Divided Nation," uh, that came out August 9th of 2022. I read it earlier than that. I got an early copy, and um, he's also the author of another related book called Reconciling Places, How to Bridge the Chasms in Our Communities. Paul's a pastor, and he's got boots on the ground experience with uh, the things he's going to talk to us about today. So thank you for joining us today, Paul. It is a great joy to be here. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, we're we're glad you're here. And uh, uh, just a little bit, um, the book's been out for a little over a month. What's it like getting a book out into the world and... Uh, <laughs> Uh, that whole process is very interesting to me personally, but I would like to hear about it from you. Sure. Yeah. Thank you for that question. Um, it's exciting. It's humbling. Um, it's a little nerve wracking. You want it to do well. You hope uh, you get on highly esteemed podcasts such as this. So Here we go. thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Um, it's, it's also a little, um, how do you put it? It's you put so much effort into it. It's it's a combination of feelings because a book is thousands of hours writing, editing, you know, if you have a co-author as I do, bantering back and forth. And then when you're done, you don't even know what to do. I imagine it's like finishing a marathon, you just want to collapse. Mm -hmm. um, but in this case, there was a lot of joy because I poured so much of myself and my life and ministry, my scholarship into this book. So Ultimately, I would say uh, humbled and grateful and just deeply thankful. Mm -hmm. And is it uh, doing okay? I mean, how yes. have you heard? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, I had a good That's conversation cool. earlier with Baker. They said um, it's doing well out of the gate. We've had a strong start, and uh, we pray that continues. So they're thankful for that. It's a it's a academic book, so they said slow and steady wins the race. It's not popular mm. level. They, they want the popular level. you got to be the horse that's, I don't know, three – four lengths ahead. You really want to build up Don't momentum. You. But yeah, with an academic book, um, you, they want slow and steady. So over time, they're really going to be measuring the two year, where are we at after two oh, nice. years, really hmm. what, the, what they're thinking about, because you hope you get picked up by professors that will use it in their classrooms, um, pastors over time, uh, hopefully will buy it, read it and, and interact. And, and that's our desire as well, that mm -hmm. it would be used by pastors. We, we are both Matt, Kim and I are pastors. Um, pastors at heart. Um, I'm in the trenches, as you said earlier. And so my deepest desire is that it wouldn't just prove um, useful to students, but also those of us who are slugging it out in the everyday trenches of ministry. Mm -hmm. So we'll find out after a year and two years is really the sign 
of well, success. You're, you're you're a patient man. I mean, <laughs> for me, a project that size, it would be like uh, you know, when I'm done with it, it's like an old girlfriend where I'm on to the next thing or something, you know. So I'm, uh, yeah. Uh, Do you have a lot of ex girlfriends? I'm a little nervous. I'm a little nervous here. <laughs> no, no, it's been a while, but uh, I, I haven't looked back. That's the thing. I guess that's yeah. my thing is I just haven't yeah. looked back, and I don't know that it would be hard for me to. Like keep doing it, but I'm gl I'm glad you are. I'm glad you're here on account of it. So yeah, thank you. Um, so when did you uh, begin to realize that you were pastoring or preaching to a divided world? I mean, how did this uh, get started? Wow, what a good question. There's been a lot of moments, but the the watershed moment for me was um, 2016. We most of us remember that election well, Clinton uh, versus Trump, and I don't know if it, I think it was mid late October when the Access Hollywood tape. Uh, came out with uh, mm. uh, Mr. Donald Trump making statements about grabbing women. And I don't, I hope I'm not triggering anyone this podcast. Um, but he said some pretty despicable things. It was caught, we know, surreptitiously by Billy Bush. Um, and I remember hearing it and I told my wife, I need to say something. I'm a pastor. I'm a community leader. I'm supposed to be a moral authority, allegedly, maybe in my own eyes, if no one else is. But, um, and my wife said, Paul, don't do it. Don't put anything on social. You you don't want to go there, Paul. And I'm like, well, when am I ever? I've been sitting on the sidelines. When am I ever allowed to weigh in on this? I'm not telling anyone to vote for anyone else. I simply want to comment on the substance of the tape. And so I went back and forth, but I just felt such a sense of moral indignation and outrage at what was being said regarding women, which I construed to be assault. And so I basically just put a link to the article and I had a couple of hashtags, disgusting, inappropriate, you know, things like this. And it lit off a crazy firebomb of madness. And the first two people to comment was astonishing to me. It was two women, two women that were defending Trump. Oh dear. And that just, I, I didn't even know what to make of it. Um, and their, their immediate response is, so you're voting for the other one. And I, and I said, no, that's, that's not what I said. I'm just commenting strictly on the content of this tape. That's it. I'm not telling anyone who they should vote for. I know it's an interesting timing. It came out right before, you know, it's like a 10 or 12 year old tape that just happened to come out two or three weeks before the election. But, um, and then it got crazier and crazier because uh, um, a pastor acquaintance of mine was actually beating on my parishioners. He was parading them and attacking them and, and then I just watched this unfold for about 90 minutes and I told my wife and she's like, told you so. <laughs> I'm sure your wives have never told you that. <laughs> but um, I had to take it down. And then wow. actually the pastor, to his credit, did uh, private message me, privately message me and apologize that he had berated, you know, parishioners in my church. And um, I was actually more supportive of what he was saying than my own parishioners, but I didn't like the, the fact that he was going at them. And so right. the, the, the way this um, proceeded so quickly and the way the comments, the, the line of argumentation, which had nothing to do with the content of the tape, it had to do pro or against, it had nothing to do with the moral argument I was trying to make. That was a moment that, and I should have known it, honestly, I should have known better, but um, that was a moment where I really clued into how mm. serious this situation is in America. And that was, I mean, I assume that was a realization that it was the, you know, it was a kind of was polarized basically. And people yeah. were unable to talk about those kinds of things. 
right? I mean, that that's yeah. what I think my big takeaway was. People are unable to talk about these things. Yeah, in a rational, coherent right. manner is what I would say. What were you going to ask, Eric? Oh, so that was in 2016 when you first noticed. But is that a rift you were dealing with for the next six years? within? Because it sounds like those are people within your church. <laughs> yes. Um, and people you're preaching to they're sitting in the pews or i don't know if you have pews or chairs or whatever but um for the past six years has that been a kind of a a battle back and forth and there are different quote-unquote parties in your yeah 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 it hasn't hasn't abated i think that was i I felt that moment was incredibly hot if i may say i don't know how you Mm. rate these things like it i'm not saying it's like a poblano chili pepper i don't have like some scoville rating but i i Mm. felt the flame of it um I felt it again, obviously, 2020 election. Um, I, I I can't even get on. I mean, that's another podcast, January 6th, because I remember I was actually sitting right here when I um, after I was finishing a sermon and I pulled up the Internet and there was people hanging off the Capitol and I was enraged and I went and watched what the president uh, said or didn't say or the half apology, whatever it was that happened. And and I was um, I was enraged like that was one of the times I felt the anger on a different level because to see people hanging up. I've been inside that Capitol. Um, I've been to the offices, some of the Congress people, because I have friends that have worked with uh, congressmen and congresswomen. Um, in fact, one of my good friends um, interned for one of the major senators that went on to become the first, um, the head of the Department of Homeland Security, John Ashcroft. Okay. Um, yeah. So I've been under those tunnels. I've been in that space. Um, I've been to the White House. I've been to the top of the, those spaces to me um, are important. They're not sacred as I hold biblical things sacred, but they're, they're important to our country. And so that was another moment. And then that whole conversation that came out of that and the recriminations and the, so there, there's been flashpoints, Eric, but I would say, yeah, it's, it's consistently been an issue. Another time of course was everything surrounding the summer of 2020 and the murder of, um, you know, George Floyd, that was a horrific moment. Watching those nine minutes was pretty much life altering for me. And I'm a white Mm -hmm. male. Right. Um, mm-hmm. my friends of color were devastated beyond ways that they could even explain to me. Mm-hmm. So there's, I'd say it's been consistent, but there's definitely been a few major flashpoints where I felt like the heat and the intensity and the pressure was even greater. Mm-hmm. And that, and that really is kind of what your book is about. Not so much the flashpoints, but how do you, how do you lead between the flashpoints in yeah. such a way that the flashes are, you know, you can handle the flashes basically. Yeah. Yeah. What kind of, I mean, how would you, how would you summarize maybe um, the mistakes that pastors make, not in, during those, you know, flashpoints, but during the day to day? I mean, mine, I'll just say mine was being silent. I just didn't say yeah. anything. But I mean, are, are there other things that pastors do that kind of tee this up to be a problem? Hmm. That's an interesting question. Um, so as I talk about this, I talk as a pastor. So I'm, I hope people understand I'm being self-reflective. So what I'm sharing is, I believe, true of me and not I'm not pointing an accusatory finger at anyone. Again, I'm a pastor's pastor. I lead a lot of unity and prayer movements, racial reconciliation movements in this region and beyond. So anything I say following is, is stuff that I think has been true of me, whether present in the past or things I still wrestle with. So I, I hope that's taken with a grain of salt. Um, the first thing I'd say is sometimes we're not self-aware. I think pastors mm. need to be aware. What are my own biases as it relates to politics? Are there candidates that get me fired up? Are mm. there issues that get me fired up? Do I even know 
what I don't know, or do I even have a sense of what I don't know? I call this mm. the Matthew seven litmus test. Have I taken the plank out of my own eye before I go uh, staring in someone else's eyeballs, looking for that little speck? Um, it's human nature to want to blame other people for the the sins that we possess. And we're not willing to go stand in a mirror first. The, the first time, and I've said this in the pulpit, I, I'm like, first time I tell people I'm preaching to myself. When I'm standing up here, I want you to know I'm talking to myself. It's almost as if I'm in front of an invisible mirror. So um, I think sometimes we can lack self-awareness and we haven't gone through Matthew 7 to take the plank out before we're yelling at somebody for the tiny little speck. Um, uh, another thing is I'd say we do tend to, and more to your point, Scott, I think oftentimes we as pastors can go to extremes. Mm. Um, either we can get um, too political or we can completely pretend like politics is not a thing. Um, and what we need to do is I think avoid either extreme where we're either in the pulpit telling people how to vote on this issue and I'm down with this candidate and up with this candidate, or we can just pretend like, Oh, you know, there is no major election happening on this upcoming Tuesday. And, um, we need to find a, a middle space. Although the middle space is where you tend to get kicked from both sides. So be prepared to have your <laughs> both cheek, both cheeks are going to be sore. You're going to be kicked from both sides. That's fair. I think. Yeah. Um, yeah, a third, a third mm. thing. Um, and you might want to weigh on this is, um, use social media with caution and how much should we be weighing in on political issues from social media? And I learned my experience. I like to think I learned my experience on that day, although I had sat on the sidelines a lot and I think the dam burst when I felt I needed to weigh in on the Access Hollywood tape. Mm -hmm. But social media, I'm still convinced, and I talk about this in my first book, Reconciling Places, I don't think the best place to have hard conversations is through social media. I think that's just people throwing firebombs, trying to get likes and retweets and trend through polarization. Polarization sells. Mm -hmm. um, and then fourth, and maybe I, you can just weigh in on any of these, I guess, but I would say we as ministers need to provide good, appropriate feedback mechanisms. So if you preach on something, what is your feedback mechanism to have conversations with people? Don't just throw a bunch of stuff out there and then leave. Are you providing ways for people to speak to you, avenues to provide feedback and reflections? Can you allow people to speak to you and tell you things you don't like to hear? Um, what's the appropriate feedback mechanism when through a sermon you're speaking for 30 to 40 minutes, you're putting out ideas, and then how do you solicit feedback so that you can hear where people are coming from. Oh, that's really good. Do you have anything in particular? Do you do something like every time or when you have a hot button, you do you structure something like that? Yeah, I do. Actually, I, I first off, I tell people, here's my email. Um, please talk to me. Like, don't just, you know, quit the church or go say my, pa <laughs> my pastor's an idiot. Um, I would agree with you half the time. Yes. Um, but um, <laughs> Right. I mean, I'm not saying I'm perfect. I'm not Jesus. I've, but um, I try and uh, sometimes with very controversial issues, we actually will tell people in advance, like we're going to have a this is one of those Sundays, everybody. Um, it's going to be sensitive. We're going to have some, you know, I'm going to speak topically to a situation. Um, and we want to let you know, like if there's kids, even like, you know, sixth grade and above, because our children's mystery programs through fifth grade. Um, if we're going to provide alternates so that kids, or we have some parents that want the kids to stay on Sundays, they want to hear the pastor speak. I don't know, but we tell them this is going to be a controversial or very heavy topic. We're giving you a heads up. Um, 
Pastor Paul will be available. Here's the elders' emails. Please talk to me, but please don't just right after send me a crazy email. Like take take some time to weigh what I told you, <laughs> and then please reach out to me. I'd like to talk to you. I'll be available after the services. Mm-hmm. You know, you kind of do all this, and then even then, you'll still have people that will flip out on you. But we try and do mm-hmm. a couple things to prepare, and then yeah. have aftercare, if you will, in the sense of afterwards being available. Thank you. No, that's good. Uh, that's that's the coaching I was looking for. So appreciate it. That's fine. If I can just highlight something you said that I I want people to notice, um, you you said and make the elders aware and they're ready too. Yes. It's not just who preached. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and now we're going to get get all the feedback. I really like that. Just from a an ecclesiological ecclesiological perspective or a shepherding perspective, um, th- they're all ready to go. And I think that's really helpful because the elders are the ones responsible to shepherd and help people um, think about truth correctly. And I think that's yeah. a really good, a, a really good piece of feedback you gave. Yeah, thank you. One other thing I, f- I failed to mention is I will at times, I don't do this often, but I will send the sermon in advance to the elder board. I've mm-hmm. also given it to my wife. My wife is a really good read on people. She has an incredibly high EQ, way greater emotional intelligence than I have. Um, and so I will ask a couple trusted people that will tell me the truth. Like, how does this come across? How might this be perceived? So I will do, you know, send it out in advance as well. But my thing is the elders are going to have to deal with the grief. So they need to, mm. they need to know what's coming. And if they have input uh, more often than not, they're very supportive and they're glad that I gave them a heads up and that we're covering it in prayer in advance. Mm. No, that's, that, that's a good idea. It sounds, I mean, you, your wife does sound like she's pretty helpful to you <laughs> from what, from this Amazing brief conversation moment. we've had, she's been pretty helpful. So that's I, good. She's great. Yeah. Um, well, your book is about preaching, and uh, you have seven steps in there. So many of which, and I did appreciate the like the preacher specific steps. Even while you're preaching, here are some things to to do. But uh, most of our listeners don't preach on a regular basis, and right. so um, you, maybe you could give a quick summary of the seven steps, and then uh, which ones are you know will work the best for people who don't preach regularly. Yeah, thank you for that question. Um, so the first thing I'd say is we the book is the primary audience would be people in the pulpit. However, we were very intentional to make the book accessible beyond those who are ordained and are in the pulpit every Sunday. So we think the book has great applicability to um, lay leaders, ministry leaders, thoughtful Christians, Christians that care about unity, reconciliation, the nature of our political discourse. And we were very um, very sensitive to that. We had a number of readers to make mm-hmm. sure it was broader than just pastors. So we think uh, a great proportion of the book it has a lot of um, broad applications beyond preachers per se. Technically, the sixth step, I think, is the most narrow and would right. be hard for you know a lay person to really um, find something there. But um, just to give you a quick overview, the first step is the theological step. And this is where we make the case that actually uh, we believe that the Bible can be interpreted and understood through what we call a reconciling narrative or reconciling lens. Um, We actually believe the Bible is a five part or five movement story surrounding reconciliation. And I think this is really important for ministry leaders that people understand this is the story of the Bible, if you will. So the first step is creator. And when I was doing my PhD studies at the University of Manchester, I, I realized in my experience with theological education, 
both at a Christian college and a seminary. We didn't do a lot with the Trinity, but over in the UK, there's, uh, there's so much on the Trinity. And when I studied the Trinity a lot, I realized this is the nature of God. Unity and diversity is inherent in the very nature of God. You have one being, three persons. I won't go down that road, but it's, it's rooted in the Trinity. So the first uh, movement's creator, second movement's first creation. God made everything with harmony, integrity, coherence. It was beautiful. It was good. We have that uh, Hebrew word tov uh, numerous times. And then we have the alienation. That's Genesis 3 um, through sin. And then we have reconciliation through the process of God using the nation of Israel and the prophets, but then sending Jesus who fulfills all that. And then that's God's mission is to reconcile all things, right? Ephesians 2 to create one new humanity. And then finally, we have the new creation and everything's moving toward the new creation, which there will be a new heaven, a new earth. Everything will be reconstituted and for eternity will be restored to that Edenic state of a state of uh, unity, harmony. And yet there's diversity because Revelation 7 says it's every tribe, tongue, nation and people group. And right now in heaven, there is diversity, but there is one being being worshipped, the lamb who was slain. And we're all wearing that robe. You can tell there's different um, people, different ethnicity, but they're all wearing um, the robe of righteousness. Can I just in, in, uh, stop you right there? I mean, I love that the the, the base step is the theological yeah. step. And we, I mean, we've talked a lot about that on the podcast. And I just am inter- it's just interesting to me that, uh, you know, having just met you, that you're approaching, you know, politics from a theological basis that has to do with the with the story arc of the Bible and yep. the really the good news. And so because that's really what we have, you know, I would say we have come to find that we can't we can't make sense of politics apart from that. Right. You know, I mean, that really has been the thing that we've gone back to over and over to help us. So I'm I, I think it's a great starting point. So anyway, continue. Yeah. Sorry. No, no, thank you. I, that's so critical because this is not, I want, you know, the old axiom, I think it was Rick Warren or others that said, you know, I want God ideas, not good ideas. Mm. I want, I want to draw from God's truth as best I can. Um, and I, I hope we've been faithful to that. Um, the second step um, is the contextual step, which is about historical intelligence. And we know there's IQ, there's EQ, there's now institutional intelligence. And so we start to build on the concept of historical intelligence, which we did not create, but we hope we develop it a little bit. And the problems that you face in Portland, Oregon, that I face in Newport, Rhode Island, didn't start yesterday. Can we agree? Mm-hmm. Um, if we do, then, um, uh, okay, I hate to disabuse you of that, but um, I do believe in the old axiom that if you don't know history, you're bound to repeat it. So we need to go back and say, what, what are the problems as a nation? And what are the unique problems to my context or my community? I imagine we have similar issues pastorally in Portland, Oregon area compared to Newport, Rhode Island. And yet we have different problems at the same time. There's similarity and dissimilarity. Only way to know that is if we look at the history of a place. And then I think we'll have a better set of tools to address the historical sins, um, et cetera. So that's the second step. Um, the third step is the personal step. This simply involves with maturity and growth. How are we growing as disciples? And this goes back to our apprenticeship to Jesus. Um, are we uh, are we growing into his image and likeness? Because that's maturity, is, is Christ-likeness. 
and we pr we produce a paradigm there where we talk about homiletical um, maturity. How do we uh, have homiletical maturity or biblical maturity, and how does that lead to renewal? And so we actually use Psalm 51 as a paradigm, hmm. uh, David's yeah. great um, penitential psalm, one of seven, but probably the most one of the most well-known chapters in Scripture, and certainly one of the most well-known psalms. And we pull out of that a three-part Venn diagram that I hope will prove helpful to people in their growth into Christ-likeness and maturity. Um, then we get on to the positional, and the positional is what is what is my role as a leader in change? And I'm sure you two have asked that, and obviously, Eric, you're asking that now as both a pastor and someone that's looking to step into the public arena as a elected official. So I'm I'm curious how you'll be thinking about this and how your reflections will grow um, because you are looking not only change for, through an ecclesiological, but now you're thinking about this politically and structures and so forth. And what does that look like? And how do you wear two hats? I'll be very curious when your book comes out in approximately two years. <laughs> um, I, I am more curious about that, but I guess the question is what is our role and what is God's role? and change. And I, I think we have to say, we, I can't change a human heart. Um, but what can I do? What am I empowered to do through the Holy Spirit to bring positive change? Well, it does seem like these last two steps um, have to do with that self-awareness that you were talking about earlier. You know, I mean, you, you yeah. miss these and you're not very self-aware about what you're doing, what God's doing, and what um, sin and prejudices in history you have. I mean, you yeah. really... You're, you've hit that like three or different ways, I think, already. Mm. So that's good. Yeah. Well, those are really helpful uh, because you, you mentioned the the recon, reconciliation narrative. These last two steps point out and, and make explicit that we have ramifications of the fall part of that narrative, the broken yep. part of that narrative. Some of that is historical and institutional and uh, communal, and some of that is personal, but the fall is definitely a reality, and we need to... Um, uh, realize that fact and, and act out of that fact. Yeah, that's well said. And and I do believe for those that, you know, geek out on theology, but I, I'm a big fan of inaugurated eschatology that the already and the not yet that Jesus, you know, initiated his kingdom, but it's not here in its fullness yet. Um, but we still have responsibility to work for the good of, of our whole the shalom of all of our communities. And I'm a big Jeremiah 29. Everyone knows, you know, the, everyone knows, you know, I want the blessing part of that verse 11, but no one goes back to verse, say like verses four, five, six, and seven, where it's like, seek, seek the peace and the prosperity, pray for it, pray for the shalom, pray for the wholeness in every layer. And that's why, you know, Eric, I have respect for you, you know, doing this. And I believe the Lord's put on your heart. I don't know how it's going to turn out. I know it's going to be rough. Um, for the friends I have that have entered the political arena or been there. Um, but I believe the Lord will be with you. But we need Christians in every domain. Mm. We need them at the political level. We need them at the governmental. We need them in the private sector and the public sector. We need them in the nonprofit and for-profit. Um, I believe that's a kingdom vision. So, yeah. So the fifth step, just to quickly go through so I make sure I cover this. But um, the fifth step is important because... I've been doing this unity work where I live now for many years. And the methodological step says too often with unity, we go backwards. Um, we try and start with the hot button issues that where we disagree. And we believe actually it's best to start by reminding ourselves, what do we have in common as Christians or as citizens? What is it that we share? So what is our shared foundation? 
And this is a sociological concept where you may be familiar with of uh, centered sets versus bounded sets. It's a sociological uh, phenomenon. Bounded sets is all about who's in and who's out. Um, you're either Republican or Democrat. You're either a Presbyterian or not a Presbyterian, you know. Um, and then centered set says it's not about who's in or out. It's what is our orientation? What are we facing? Are we all moving in the same direction? We're different. Um, if we're all in a spaceship headed to the sun, some of us are closer to the sun, some of us are further away from the sun, but we all have the same destination. And so we said it's best to focus on centered sets than bounded sets. So we talk about this idea that we think it's best if people um, start by building common ground around four areas, shared identity, um, shared doctrine. I'm not going in the right order, but uh, shared doctrine, shared identity, shared mission, which is the great commandment, great commission. Every Christian is called to do that. And then shared experiences of pain, loss, heartache, um, fear, you know, these kinds of things. And there's more that we could have elaborated on, but we chose four. And we said, what would it look like if we just sit down and focus on what we share in common and then move to the areas of disagreement? Um, we may approach each other a little bit differently from a position of strength and not weakness. Hmm. I like that. So we have that and we have diagrams that were um, one of my best friends does a lot with graphic art. And I think I like the diagrams. They're cool and different. Um, you know, he, he wouldn't let me do boring, uh, stick figures and I think they came out okay, but for the visual learners, that was important. And then, um, the seventh is the categorical. So this is in a sense, goes back to number one, it's theological, but we actually give people, Hey, here are common themes you can build off of. Here are, uh, texts though, that deal with the four isms that we address in the book, sexism, uh, ethnocentrism, or you could say racism, classism. Um, uh, and partisanism is actually a word, partisanism or political polarization. So we talk about three of the isms are in Galatians 3, 28. The other one is basically 1 Corinthians 1, the division over personalities, which is a lot of commonality to our politics. Mm -hmm. So that's categorical. That's scripture. Here's some scripture okay. that you can use. And then you gave some examples at the end, which I thought were... Um were really helpful too. I mean, just practically, here's how you might preach that. Yep. Um, but yeah, no, that's, uh, thank you for going through those. That's, that's helpful. Uh, and you know, I've, I've read the book and it was helpful for me to hear you <laughs> talk about it. Um, but, um, you talked about the, the idolatry of politics. Um, you know, what yeah. do you mean when you say that? Okay. This is where I might hit close to home for some people. So, um, you know, I, my idea is when I speak, I'm trying to speak at a place of what I'm learning. I welcome people's input, feedback. If I'm wrong, call me out. If you have a different approach, please, I welcome um, dialogue. Um, what I would say is um, there's a scholar named Liliana Mason who teaches at University of Maryland. She wrote a book called Uncivil Agreement, Uncivil Agreement. And she's a, um, you know, political scientist, studies government trends. And she says, that the newest um, research says over the last 50 years, politics have become what is known. And these are secular people. To my knowledge, I don't know if they have faith or not, but they're coming from a, they're not coming from an explicitly faith perspective, but they're calling politics a mega identity. A mm. mega identity, meaning it's becoming a dominant lens. It's becoming a mm. all-consuming, totalizing way of not just looking at life, but living. 
And they've done the studies on this. Perhaps you've heard this, but people now um, we're actually people are dividing so um, uh, aggressively over politics that now they say they've done these studies. Um, you know, um, Democrats wear Levi's, Republicans wear Wranglers. Um, you know, Democrats, I don't know if they, is it Pete's Coffee or Dunkin' Donuts and Democrats drink Starbucks. Um, it's literally working itself out in hmm. where people live, what they wear, what they consume, um, where they shop. Like this is segmenting. And um, Liliana Mason uses the words, she calls it, it leads to social polarization, which is, she says, three things happen. There's increased partisan bias, meaning oh, those stupid Democrats, oh, those stupid Republicans, like it's greater bias. Like if I see the name, I've labeled you. Oh, you voted for so-and-so, I've labeled you all this. Um, increased, uh, she says, secondly, there's increased emotional reactivity. Like people are like out of their minds. And then third, increased activism, which is should be the positive. If anything, we want people to be a little more civically engaged, but... You have the partisan bias, which is generalizing labeling. And then you have the increased emotional reactivity where people are not thinking through um, policy. They're just like freaking out, like the story I told earlier. And, and I've been guilty. I don't want to pretend like I'm cool, calm and collected. I've been reactive as well. And there's times I wish I had behaved differently than I did. And so I'm not pretending that I'm on some high horse here. But um the, what is the, the, the Bible says idols are false gods. They're false gods. And so we're called to repent of our idols or God will allow us to experience the consequences of our unrepentant idolatry. And he'll remove his restraining hand of grace. And we will experience the full impact of our worship of idols if we don't repent and turn back to him. We, yeah, we have seen the... Um, the lining up of people along uh, polarized lines, not not just practically or during those flashpoints, but we've we've had people, we've had friends move to other states. Wow. I don't know if that happens back east, but it's happened here. Is the there's kind of a sort uh, yeah. where people are using um, politics as a as a reason to relocate. Yeah, reason. I've heard that. That's I've heard it, that. Well, that reminds me of uh, uh, Bill Bishop wrote the the Big Sort, describing yep. people self sorting locationally. But you described it uh, in a consumer fashion as well. Um, and I love that. I've never heard of that mega identity. But I think yeah. if you elevate something to be your god, yeah. uh, your god defines your identity. Yep. So of course, if you do that with politics, uh, it's it's going to define everything you do, uh, or at least influence everything you do. I, that's really helpful. Yeah. And one other, just a way to kind of ping off that. I think um, I, I want to be clear. I'm not anti-politics. I'm not, I'm not anti-government, anti-politics. Um, normally an idol. And I, you know, I studied Tim Keller as part of my PhD research was actually, I critically analyzed Tim Keller's urban mission model, but I, I agree with Keller that, you know, and he's drawing from the reformers, but a, an idol is a good thing that becomes an ultimate thing. It's not a bad thing in and of itself. Politics I, I think you would agree with this, Eric. Both of you would agree. It, politics, the partisan process, the structures, these are not bad in and of themselves. They're a good thing, but they become an ultimate thing. And when something that's a good thing becomes an ultimate thing and takes the place of Jesus Christ and the throne of our hearts, then, mm. then we're in trouble. 
Yeah, no, thank you. Thank you for that. <laughs> Keller references, uh, references to like turning off your TV and getting off social media. All those are welcome. <laughs> yeah. These are the bing this is the bingo card of City on a Hill. You're just hitting them all. <laughs> you, Redemptive you narrative. Yep. You're hitting a lot of them. So thank you. Sure. Um, but but that does kind of lead me to, to think. I mean, I kind of grew up w engaging politics or Christians engaging politics through, I don't know, the moral majority phase of our, you know, evangelical church, I suppose, where there were Christian policies and there were non-Christian policies and Christians kind of engaged solely on, an, on a policy kind of a level. Um, is there another way that you would think about that yeah. maybe Christians or our listeners should think about uh, what it means to be a Christian relating to politics besides just policies? Oh uh, yeah, that's a million dollar question. What a great question. Uh, thank you. Um, so my first thing is, I hope this doesn't come across weird or trite or hyper spiritual, but the, the clear command of scripture in first Timothy two is pray for your leaders. So my first lens is, am I, am I, are you, are we living into first Timothy two? Are we interceding for our, and, and remember, this is Paul speaking into a Roman, you know, speaking to Timothy, this is Rome. They don't have popular, they don't really have popular government. They're, you know, sticking Christians on stakes and lighting them on fire because they feel like it. Um, so this is not even like, I'm, a, I'm in America, I don't like my president. It's like, you could be in big trouble any day when the government is, is fed up with you and there's no recourse. So we forget the context of the scriptures that they didn't have a fully democratic um you know, representative government like we do a federal republic. Um, but do we pray for them? That's the first thing. If we're if we're giving all this money and spending all this time, first off, we're not really going to the person who has the power to really change their hearts and to change our hearts. So first Timothy through uh two is that if we don't obey that, then I think we're gonna be askew. And that, I'm applying that to myself. So first Timothy two, pray for politicians. Secondly, I have to remind myself there's only one king and one kingdom. There's only one real ruler. The rest of the people are just, you know, taking up space and taking up time and they can do some good or bad. And I don't want to undermine you, Eric. And I pray the Lord blesses you and, <laughs> and puts you into a place of prominence and authority and, you know, a place where you could be a servant leader and show us a different way to lead. But um, there's only one king that's always been that way. The, there was one king before he created everything. He always existed. He's eternal, immortal, invisible. Um, and one day, you know, in heaven, there are no Democrat. There's no Democrat section or Republican. There's no uh Republican. There's no independent. There's no Green Party. There's no, you know, the, the, we, I hope we know that. I think we forget that. You're just making um, us look forward to having a little bit more. Is that I, what you're doing, right? <laughs> I just, I'm looking for the day where there'll be no mention of this president, this policy, or this poll, or, um, and Jesus isn't like up, up, you know, in heaven, like biting his nails about the latest poll figures. Um, he knows how it's going to play out and he's governing it. Mm -hmm. um, we need to remind ourselves that third, I'd reframe. I, I don't, I think politics is one part of the wider category of public engagement. If I can put it that way, mm -hmm. I, I think politics, um, politics to me, and I define this in my first book, um, reconciling places, politics is partisanship. It involves candidates voting and policy, but the, the original word politics comes from the Greek word polis, which refers to the city which refers to the common or shared environment, the good, the common good. Ideally, we know no city is perfect and every city has the haves and the have nots, but ideally it's for the common good of all those in that place. So 
I like to think about public engagement. And this is where I do like what Keller did. Keller said in Generous Justice, he gave three different categories of involvement. He talks about relief, like on, on the ground, hands, soup kitchen, you know, clothe people, feed people, um, development, which is education, um, training, um, some work with non-for-profits, NGOs. And then he talks about social reform. And he his argument is not, it's like an upward pyramid. There's going to be a broader base at the bottom, but there'll probably be less and less people near the top to actually run for government that support those that run for government, that fundraise, that create policy. But nonetheless, we need people that are doing reform, but we shouldn't think of it as only one thing. We should think of it as three levels and hopefully we're all engaging on at least one of three levels. Does that make sense? Yeah, that does. No, that's, uh, that's really helpful. I appreciate that uh, very much. I think that one of the things when you were talking about, you know, politics equals partisanship that, that has happened as a result of this politics equal partisanship thing is that that has tended to make Christians fearful of the city and of the world. And so we react badly, you know, there against us and we have this, we're not able to seek the good in the same way. I don't know if you've noticed that on your side of the country or not, but we're missing, we're missing the big picture. We're stuck in these little myopic, we're staring at the bark on the tree and ripping it off. And it's like, there's a forest. And politics isn't the only way. It's a very important way. It's a very visible way. It has a lot of money. It has a lot of cloud. It gets a lot of media. But there's so many good people doing great work that are out there feeding the poor, that are training people, that are helping people, that are getting out of prison. And we really need people to be in dialogue. We need the, the people on the ground to be in dialogue with the policymakers. We need, you know, we the best policy, I think, involves collaboration. Um, and... Ideally, that's what it would look like. But I don't want people to think politics is only partisanship because it's really all of us working toward the common good on any number of it could be relief. um, It could be development. It could be social reform. But Keller has those categories Mm -hmm. in his book, Generous Justice. And I I appreciated that distinction. Yeah, thank you for that. So you've you've dropped uh, you've dropped a few books on us here. And I know (laughs) you, you know, did your Ph.D. on things related to this and you just uh, finish this book. I mean, what, what are some things that our listeners maybe should kind of keep in mind and we can put these in the show notes if you've got yeah. something that would help us. Yeah. Thank you for that. Um, one point that I think is a bridge, cause there was one more point I, I failed to oh. make about that. And I think this okay. does apply to resources. There's a Catholic doctrine called subsidiarity. Subsidiarity says it is your job to start locally, start with the people around you, start with your neighbor, start with your town hall, And one thing I would tell people is let's start where we live. The problem with politics is it tends to be national and totalizing. The party demands your total, absolute allegiance. And all these people, I've talked to a lot of family and friends that all they care about is the president, the president's platform, previous president, current president. But I'm like, do you even know what's happening in your community? Like, do you even know, like, what's like, what are the issues in your own town? Like, those people don't care about your town. I, I, I don't mean to disparage them, but they have no idea what's going on in Bend, Oregon, mm-hmm. or Newport, Rhode Island, or, you know, so the best thing we can do is say, what am I doing here? And that goes back to the uh, Acts 1-8 paradigm, Jerusalem, then Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So it's the outward concentric circles. 
Um, in terms of resources, um, I do provide a number of resources in, in my book, not to overly, you know, come across forceful on that. But our well, maybe book has, people should get your book then. That yeah. would be one good resource. Well, well, yeah, if they want to see the graphs, they need to we'll get start your book. there. The, the cool, the cool <laughs> diagrams. That sounds uh, maybe a bit silly, but no, we have an accountability covenant. We have reflections on critical race theory. Um, we have, um, you know, what I say, we have accountability where pastors can like sign accountability. I'm going to be a reconciler, uniter. Um, we have resources in the back here, suggested resources on different topics. We have a really good list that we had to winnow down because of words, but a lot of um, unity and reconciliation ministries, hmm. both locally and nationally, that people can get behind and support. Um, and that's one of the my application points is people say, where do I start? And I say, is are you or your church involved in any kind of like local, regional, multi-church prayer or multi-church unity reconciliation movement where it's multi-ethnic, it's multi-denominational. There's other people there that voted differently than you. They look differently than you. Um, a lot of people are all bent out of shape about this stuff. And I'm like, why don't you just start uniting in your own community? And so I, I've co-founded and, and co-lead a movement in this region going on since 2009 called um, One Church, One Prayer. It's a monthly gathering of five churches where we come and we pray. We, we call out these sins and we say, Lord, help us. We're broken. We need you. Uh, we need revival. And so, um, you know, the book has a number of reconciliation ministries, but, you know, um, just go talk to your pastor. Talk is what's the local clergy group. You know, a lot of this is just taking the time to be curious and to go to the community and go to the NGOs, ask them what's going on in my community. Find out from your pastor. Is there a pastor's fellowship? Is there a, you know, a prayer meeting like quarterly or annually with other churches? Um, in terms of other things, I would say Reconciling Places, my first book, I talk about some practical steps by way of reconciling prayer. Um, here's ways we can pray that's reconciling. I talk about reconciling rhetoric. How do we speak in a way that fosters reconciliation, doesn't throw gasoline on the tribalism? I talk about forming reconciliation coalitions or starting ministries that have this passion. Um, and then there's lots of podcasts, people that I listen to. Um, you know, uh, you guys may be familiar with John Perkins, um, mm -hmm. Christian Community Development Corporation. He's one of the greats. He's in line with Martin Luther King Jr. Mm -hmm. um, and he's really doing it incarnationally. So anything by John Perkins, Brenda Salter McNeil has a great book, Roadmap to Reconciliation. Um, I could go on and on, but those are two uh, wonderful resources. And we list a bunch in the back of Preaching to a Divided mm -hmm. Nation. My, my last thing would be, you know, for some people, you know, we want to go out and change the world. We want to do this, want to do that. My first thing I tell people is um, take a relational inventory. The first thing you can do is say, look around you. Um, does everyone look like you? Do they talk like you? Do they dress like you? Do they frequent the same restaurants as you? Do they watch and binge watch the same Hulu or Netflix series as you? Um, if everyone looks like you, you might be a narcissist. <laughs> and so I take this from someone that's working it through in my own, but mm -hmm. people, people say, well, oh, this country, blah, well, let it start with you, man. Let it start with you. Like, mm. are you cultivating inner ethnic friendships? Are you cultivating um, inner political friendships? Are you cultivating inner economic interdenominational friendships. If, if everyone around you is Baptist or Presbyterian or non-denominational and 
they all have the same skin color and voted for the same person. I don't think you're doing enough. I, I, I'm just being honest. Is mm-hmm. And we talk about this in the book. Second Corinthians 5 is very clear. We have the identity, the message, and the ministry of reconciliation. Mm-hmm. Um, so that means we have to be around people who are different than us. So that, you know, let's put down our stones before we start throwing them at our politicians. Let's go stand in front of a mirror and say, Lord, it starts with me. What do I need to do? So that would be my first thing. And then just pinging off what I said, you know, can we do a better job connecting with other churches, other non-for-profits and building up, being intentional to show up at unity movements, unity prayer gatherings, anything that's community wide that shows that we care and we want to pray. We can't solve all these problems, but we'd like to pray for you. Or we'd like to, I think if we did more of that, I think the world, I think it would change our communities drastically. Hmm. Well, th- yeah, you gave me more than a bargain for there. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Didn't mean no, to no, no, no. Uh, well, uh, shall I say, I, I should say thank you, but I also say no offense <laughs> taken. But yeah. anyway, no, that was uh, that was a good word for me and I think a good word for our listeners too. I mean, it's super practical. I mean, a look in the yeah. mirror is something that yeah. everybody can do. And I do think that uh, relationships and those friendships that you mentioned would be a great place to start. So... Thank you for that word. That's a great place. Uh, yeah, kind of a great place to wrap this up, I think. So thank you so much, Paul, for your time and your work on the book, but also just in investing in this conversation. I could tell that you uh, were gave us some good stuff that I, you know, beyond what I got out of the book even. So thank you. Oh, thank you. Yeah, and, and I pray God blesses you, your church, your ministry, your candidacy. And um, I'm looking forward to a good report of how the Lord's going to be continuing to use you guys in the future. So thank you for doing this. Yeah, we'll have to keep in touch. Thank you. Amen. Awesome. Thank you. Well, listeners, don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and rate us. If you find what we're doing helpful, a review goes a long way to getting this to other people. Uh, share it with a friend. If you have questions, send them to comment at cityonahillpodcast.com. And we look forward to the next conversation.